give your full attention to the reading of God's word, Micah 5, 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Have you ever wondered, how long do you think that walk to Emmaus took? It's seven miles from Jerusalem. And according to Luke's gospel, a bit of the time of that walk was spent chastising this mysterious stranger for being the only one in Jerusalem who seemed not to know about the crucifixion. I had an Old Testament studies class one time where we spent 30 lecture hours in Genesis 1 through 12. In a Hebrew exegesis class, we would regularly spend three hours on a single passage of the Old Testament, moving backward and forward through the Bible to connect it with its related passages. But on some portion of this seven-mile walk to Emmaus, Jesus met with Cleopas and his companion, likely his wife Mary, And there, Luke says, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They must have walked very slowly. (laughs) Kidding aside, Luke doesn't say that Jesus interpreted the whole Bible for them. Not passage by passage or verse by verse. He says he interpreted the whole of the Bible to them. From the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, all the way through the prophets, Jesus interpreted how the whole story, all the things, concern him. And some have misunderstood this, taking it to mean that every verse is about Jesus. And so they read the Bible, every single verse, confident that there is something to be found directly about Jesus in all of them. And you may have experienced that can lead to some pretty weird results because it's not what Jesus says. What Jesus does say, and what's crucial, is that he is at the theological center of the whole story. The whole Old Testament points to him. He is the climax of God's story. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. All that happens in the Old Testament is part of God's salvation history with his people. And Christ is the center 
of that. And that's what we have in this morning's passage. Christ as the theological center of Micah's whole story. All of Micah's oracles focus on this one point. Micah has talked about judgment before, and he's talked about salvation. But in this oracle, salvation takes center stage, and Christ is preached as clearly as anywhere else in the Old Testament. The structure of this oracle is the same as the two we read last week. Look at the similarities. This one also starts with the word now. This one also directs God's people to a particular action. This one also refers to God's people as daughter. Yet each of these familiar features from last week are just different enough. So as to point out that while this oracle is similar, it fits the pattern, something about this one is going to be very different. An easy one to spot is that daughter. Daughter Zion of the first two oracles shifts here to daughter of troops. There's several of these really subtle changes where Micah sets up his hearers to expect something slightly different than before. Here, there's only one verse about the darkness compared to five about the light. That's a very different ratio than so far in Micah. One way to study this passage is to look at the two halves of the salvation oracle. If you'll notice, verses two and four focus, uh, two through four, focus on Israel's coming Messiah. They are directly about Jesus. Verses 5 and 6 are about the Messiah's under-shepherds for the kingdom. Those who will rule for Jesus, with Jesus, but under his authority. And that division is really helpful to keep in mind, but I'm going to organize the text around a different structure. Because it's by considering these sections as one unit, taking it all together, that we find three things God reveals about himself. And These things inform not only our understanding of how God will save his people, but they inform our understanding of how God's people will live in light of that salvation. First, Micah shows us that God's ways are counter-predictable to the world. Kids, you know what unpredictable means. You can't guess what's going to happen. You can't predict it. Counterpredictable is even beyond that. It means that what happens is actually the opposite of what you would expect. We just finished the last Harry Potter Friday night because Kate recently finished reading the books. It's a predictable story when the hero has to kill the villain in order for the good guys to win. It's a counterpredictable story when to save the world the villain has to first kill the hero. Verse 1 is a familiar oracle of judgment. Under God's judgment, Israel will be conquered by her enemies. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. No surprise, Micah has said as much several times before. But Micah has also promised before that from this low position, God will redeem his people. And that redemption is the focus of this passage, and it raises the the natural question, how? Where are God's people to look for this salvation? Now, if the story were predictable, 
when surrounded by armies, what would you look to? Bigger armies. When under the yoke of human power, what would you look to? Greater human power. That's predictable. But a counter-predictable story tells you to look to Bethlehem Ephrata. We know it just as Bethlehem. And it's famous to us because that's where Jesus was born. But at this time, so obscure is the town to Micah's audience that he not only has to give the name of the town Bethlehem, he's got to give the district that it's in, Ephrata, so they could find it on a map. This is a tiny place. In Joshua 15, we read the list of cities that Joshua allots to the tribe of Judah. He lists 115 cities in that area, and Bethlehem isn't even big enough to make the list. She is indeed too little to be among the clans of Judah. God's ways are counter-predictable. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, from this tiny, insignificant town, the Savior of the world will come. Now, this should not seem so odd to God's people. After all, God was sovereign even over the naming of the place. Bethlehem means house of bread, and Ephrata means fruitful. Though not deserving of any grandeur by worldly measures, in God's counterpredictable economy, big things come in small packages. We should remember that too when we feel too little to be useful to God, too weak to do something mighty for his kingdom. God works in counterpredictable ways. Bethlehem's history bore this out. Bethlehem is the city of Boaz, the hero of that great kinsman redeemer story in Ruth. This was a place that God had already used in redemptive history to show salvation by grace on a small scale. It's also the location of another significant event in God's story. Samuel came to Bethlehem, and there he asked a man named Jesse to present his sons. Now, Jesse had eight sons, but for this important task, he thought only seven of them were worthy enough to be considered. Yet, as we know, as one pastor puts it, contrary to all human expectations, David was the one God would use to launch his kingdom. Big things with God come in small packages. What was David's calling? His defeat of Goliath and his ascension to the throne of Israel, if not counterpredictable. God sovereignly appointed David, equipped him for the tasks, and prospered his people under David's even mostly faithful leadership. But now, of course, in Micah's time, David's line is nearly gone. Idolatry and unfaithfulness have brought judgment on the house of David and on Israel as a whole. You know, our own city, Atlanta, has for its emblem a phoenix, and the motto, resurgence. In the Civil War, this great southern city was brought low, burned to the ground, surely at least in part as part of God's judgment on those who prospered themselves on the backs of kidnapped slaves. 
The Phoenix and Resurgence are because modern Atlanta sees itself as rising again from the ashes and returning to some form of former greatness. Obviously, athletics are excluded. God is promising a greater resurgence for the line of David when not merely a human king, but God himself will bring this about. And that's why it comes from Bethlehem. It's the kind of place the world would never choose. It's the kind of tool the world would say is useless. It's the kind of place the world would never expect. And when God brings such great salvation from such tiny Bethlehem, what else can be said but glory to God alone in the highest? In light of the current calamity and the impending calamity, any future glory for Israel is unexpected. Micah uses the labor analogy once again. Verse 3, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. When the world sees the persecution of God's people, even under the hand of God, what the world sees and hears is simply Israel's struggle and groaning under oppression. It looks like they're losing and the small are being made even smaller. But what God's people are to understand is that these are the labor pains from which the Messiah will come forth, from which God's future glory for his people is reborn. Israel is being punished for her unfaithfulness. But we must remember that God's punishments for his people are not punitive. God's punishments for his people are intended to bring about change. God puts us under the weight of his divine rebuke so that we will see our sin and turn from it and return to him in repentance and faith. This too shall pass for God's people is not guaranteed simply because nothing lasts forever. This too shall pass is guaranteed for God's people because whatever this too is, it is accomplishing God's purposes in us. Now, how long that takes, humanly speaking, is often up to us. How open are we to God's correction? To the world, Israel looks seriously weak. And they are. And Micah knows it. He identifies with them in verse 1. Siege is laid against us. He acknowledges that even their king looks pathetic, struck on the cheek. With a rod, that's a humiliating gesture in the ancient world. God's people look powerless and shamed. And when the Messiah comes and the world looks upon him, won't he look powerless and shamed? Counterpredictable means you can't always see how we get there from here. You know that experience. There's too much guilt to ever stop feeling guilty. There's too much shame to ever stand tall. This perseverance takes more power than I can muster. Holiness is more than I can deliver. I just don't see how I get there from here. Israel finds itself in such a dark context. 
And so too will all of God's people from time to time, individually and collectively as the church. Professor Bruce Waltke says, in this dark context, Micah gives the faithful troop bright hope to fight on through insurmountable odds. God will bring his triumphant ruler into the world. It's counterpredictable. That's how God works. Second, Micah declares that God is the ultimate ruler of his people. How did Israel get to this dark place? Again and again, Micah has shown us that it's Israel's unfaithful leadership. So how will God solve this problem for his people? Verse 2, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler. God will set Christ, the divine son, on the throne of David. And from there, God will lead his people himself. Here again, Micah is given a glimpse into the future. This king whose coming forth is from old will be great to the ends of the earth. That means this king will do from the line of David what all of David's heirs and even David himself failed to do. He will lead God's people with perfect faithfulness and expand God's kingdom to every corner of the globe. The rulers of Micah's day sold out the people for personal gain. They used their power and their wealth to push others down. But Israel's savior, God's appointed king, by human standards, having no power nor wealth, will rule them in the strength of the Lord. The difference that makes is revealed in the illustration of verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. The king who rules in the strength of the Lord rules the way a shepherd tends his flock. The kingly line of David was brought to ruin by idolatry, but now it will rise from the ashes with a fresh start. Remember that David, uh, God had promised David's line an eternal covenant. And in the hands of men, this did not seem likely to work out. To Micah's audience now, it seems even impossible But you see, God will not leave the fulfillment of his promises in the hands of men. He who is faithful will surely do it. Isaiah, when speaking of these same events, uses the illustration of a rotted tree, right? God will take his divine axe to the rotten tree of David's lineage, leaving only a stump. But from that stump of Jesse, a shoot will come up and a branch will bear fruit. To us, it looks like a dead tree. You can't get there from here. But to God, it's the foundation for his kingdom of glory. This Messiah will shepherd in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of his name, as will those who come after him, the shepherds and princes of verses 5 and 6. But these will not be earthly kings ruling over kingdoms of this world. Micah here is talking about the under-shepherds of Christ. Those are the leaders of Christ's church. These men shepherd the flock in his strength for his glory. Israel knows how unfaithful their leaders are. The remnant has experienced that wickedness firsthand. 
And so God, through Micah, calls them to look forward to a time when they will be secure in the godly leadership that he gives them. He uses language that they can understand, but it's like we said a few weeks ago, that language points forward to a fulfillment they can't yet see. That even when they are under attack, they will dwell securely because of the leaders God has provided. The phrases seven shepherds and eight princes of men is a Hebrew literary technique. Seven is the number of completeness, sufficiency, perfection. Seven shepherds means that God will give his people exactly the number of leaders they need to dwell secure. Eight princes indicates they have even more than they need. God gives his people more than they need to be secure even when under attack. How I hope our brothers and sisters throughout the world remember that in these times. People dwell secure. They experience peace. They thrive under good leadership. For God's people, we can only have this when he is at the helm. And yes, thanks be to God, he provides godly shepherds for his church, those who shepherd the flock in his strength and in his majesty. I'm not exaggerating to say that situations like COVID-19 have highlighted just how important this is and just how insecure God's people become under leadership that does not operate by God's strength. Now third, Micah shows us That God himself gathers and scatters. Jesus' kingdom will be one of total and everlasting peace because at the consummation, he will both fully gather his flock and fully scatter his enemies in judgment. It's a work that has already begun with Christ's coming, but in that day, it will be complete. Remember what Jesus said in John 10. I am the good shepherd. We remember that passage. I lay down my life for the sheep. We often forget the end of that passage. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus will gather all of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under his rule into one flock. And everyone else, his enemies, will be scattered forever in judgment. Remember that the Old Testament prophets have to make sense to their contemporary audience while revealing events that won't take place for a long time in the future. One scholar says they garb the future fulfillment in the clothes of the present. So in the clothes of the 7th century BC, this text reads like a promise for a future Israelite victory over Assyria. That's the language. But that's not what's in view here. The same scholar writes God's plan for rescuing his people from his enemies is by gathering believers from all nations as members of one spiritual family through faith in Christ. Israel will soon be in exile. God's people will look puny and pathetic. The predictable victory from that is that Israel would be restored with a bigger army and a better king and would take back some land in the ancient Near East. 
That's not God's plan. God's counterpredictable plan is that in that day, the day of his Messiah, God will begin the process of gathering all his people together. I challenge you to go back and read Acts 2 with this passage in mind. Read as the 120 initial faithful followers of God have 3,000 added to their numbers on the day of Pentecost. Read as the Lord adds daily to those who are being saved. God was then and is now gathering his people. That is his counterpredictable solution to the problem before him. Under the earthly rule of Hezekiah, the failing line of David's kings, Israel just keeps shrinking. But Israel's future king, this one who will rule for God, will gather his people together and expand that kingdom even to the ends of the earth. And this does not happen by the sword of war That would be too predictable. God's kingdom expands by the counterpredictable sword of the Spirit. The first can only maim and kill, but the other, the sword of God's people, the sword of the Spirit, is living and active. It can divide even soul and spirit as it judges the attitudes of the heart. And so God will gather his people together by the power of his word. And as he does this, the power of his word will judge and scatter his enemies. The same event, that great judgment of Christ, will have dramatically different effects on the faithful and the unfaithful. Standing before God in judgment for unrepented sin, God's enemies will be scattered. If you dare to stand before God on that day, Wrapped in your own righteousness, you will be scattered. But for the faithful, I always like to imagine that we will be singing the second verse of We Come, O Christ, to You. You are the way to God. Your blood, our ransom, paid. In you we face our judge and maker unafraid. Before The throne absolved we stand. Your love has met your law's demand. With Christ at the center of all God's promises. With this great salvation under his perfect leadership now revealed. What do we do? What do we do now? Well, we do what Micah's remnant did. We wait in faith. Remember, as many historians point out, before the remnant gave birth to the Messiah, it had to first endure seven centuries under the continued sway of Assyria and then Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Seven centuries God's people wait from this promise until John the Baptist says, prepare the way of the Lord. It would be years. Years of suffering for sin and unfaithfulness. Years before Israel would meet this Messiah. And because 
Even among small Israel, the faithful remnant was even smaller. Many would reject that Messiah when he came, unfolding God's plan of peace for all nations and a name that would be great in all the earth and not just in Israel. God's counterpredictable plan works because he leads his people and because he is the one who gathers and scatters. So what we do is wait in faith. The gospel narratives give us glimpses into the lives of what it looks like when believers do this. Seven centuries of waiting, and they still believe God. Remember Zechariah's song when Elizabeth gave birth to John? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. He knew what was happening. He knew exactly what was happening because he believed God. And he had waited with hope. How did Mary, Jesus' mother, conferring with Elizabeth, respond to the news of their twin pregnancies? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. She knew what was happening because she believed God. She waited with hope. Simeon and Anna are favorites of mine. Simeon, long waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna, having dedicated herself to prayer and fasting in the temple in her old age. Joy filled their eyes. And Simeon said, My eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light, a revelation for the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Simeon knew what was happening. Anna knew what was happening because they believed God. And they waited with hope. Where do you need to apply this kind of faith and hope. To you, does it seem that the church is unlikely to prevail against the gates of hell? That the church on earth will not succeed? By earthly measures, it does seem unlikely, doesn't it? But remember, you're counter-predictable God. Or is it your faith? Or a loved one's faith that seems too weak for the task of persevering in such great times of struggle. By earthly measures, it may seem unlikely. But remember, all with faith are led by the Savior in the strength of the Lord. His strength is as sufficient as his holiness is for our righteousness. Or does it? just all seem to be taking too long. So long you wonder if it will ever come to be. God will gather. He is gathering. He will scatter. He is scattering. But dear one, it's in his time. And just as he is sovereign over that day, He is sovereign over all of the days in between through which you must persevere. So wait with hope. Believe in God because you know what's coming. 
believe until he comes.